Father, we thank you for the gifts that you've given the body for Alicia, for Nathan, the many in our body who have been gifted with beautiful instruments and their voice, and then with the skill to play. Father, we are so thankful and don't want to take that for granted. We also, Lord, constantly want to be reminded that we're never an audience. You're the audience, the audience of one. And we seek to bring you glory in the ways in which we sing, all of us. We use the gifts that you've given us. We praise you that you have promised such to us and the joy of being able to use them to extend the gospel of Jesus Christ is overwhelming. What a joy. God, I pray that as we open your word today, as we anticipate the day in which Christ will return, you will fix our eyes upon your glory. And indeed, even now, you will turn our eyes away from looking at worthless things. We will look to the one who is our Savior and the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I have you stand for the reading of God's word from Daniel, I want to do a children's sermon for a moment. Children, if you're a child, raise your hand. Put it up high so I can see you. Now, I know all of us are children of the living God. And I can't have you come forward because we have a certain setup tonight for the concerts this afternoon at 4.30 and at 7.30. But I want you to listen very carefully. I want to start with a question. And this is actually for all of us. Jack Miller, the, the wonderful pastor, seminary professor, church planter, author, used to ask this question of Christians. When is the last time you did something simply because you love Jesus? I want you to think about that. When is the last time you did something simply because you love Christ because of what he's done for you? I remember when I learned to be a giver. I've always been good at receiving. I love Christmas, and I love getting presents. And early on, in September, October, when the Christmas catalogs would come, children, I would begin to circle things that I wanted. I would put stars by them, and I would fix my eyes on them, and I would make known to my mom and dad, this is what I would like for Christmas. But I also have a birthday, and that birthday's right before Christmas on the 21st. That's not a hint to give me gifts. <laughs> 21st. But my sister's birthday's the day before mine. I know. <laughs> it's a bummer. She's older than me. My grandfather's birthday was Christmas Eve. So what you're hearing me say is I was competing against my sister, against my grandfather, against Jesus. So often my presents would come wrapped in Christmas packaging. A twofer, my extended family would say. Nobody wants a twofer. <laughs> I remember children fixing my eyes on a Tonka truck one Christmas, a snorkel, fire engine. I always wanted to be a fireman. And this fire truck was incredible. 
I'd see it in the catalog, I'd see it in the store, I wanted it bad, and I got it for Christmas. My wish had come true, my desire was fulfilled. I loved the idea of rescuing people, of celebrating that, watching those trucks roll code three with sirens blaring, I loved it. But I also remember when I learned to give gifts. I was about six. And a lady that lived around the corner from where I grew up had a shop in her house. She did ceramics. And somehow I discovered that she made these beautiful ceramics and then would paint them. And so I went in and saw her studio. And there was an unfinished ceramic gift. It literally was a box, plain white, hadn't been painted. And for whatever reason, I wanted to give that to my mom after this woman would paint it. And she did. She painted it this beautiful, bright Christmas red with white snowflakes all over it. It was ceramic, the lid would come off, and inside was nothing. Nothing was inside. It wasn't what was inside that was the gift, it was the gift itself. And I remember saving money, $5.95, which was a lot back then. And I went and I waited. Every day I'd go by, are you done? How far have you gotten? Are you making progress? Am I a priority? Christmas is coming. This was like October. <laughs> and then it was done. That ceramic gift that I gave to my mom is sitting on our coffee table today. It's my kid's favorite thing to see. It's when I learned to give. It's when I really learned to save my own money and give something because of someone I love. I really wouldn't think much about the significance of the fact that there's nothing inside it till much later. But some of you already know where I'm going. The picture of the empty tomb. You see, this idea of the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh, is not really centered on Bethlehem. It's centered on Calvary and Golgotha the place where Jesus was crucified and the place where he was set in the tomb. But he's not there. He's not on the cross and he's not in the tomb. The tomb is empty, just like the gift was empty. Such profound symbolism of what this season ultimately means in pointing to the reality of why Christ came. Kids, children, there's no greater gift known to man than God sending his only son to live the perfect life that we could never live and to die the perfect death we all deserve to die. That's the greatest gift of all. Any who profess faith in Jesus, who receive Jesus, and his atonement, which simply means his life and his death for his people, for the forgiveness of sins, he earning our salvation, any who rest and receive in him alone for salvation, have him as our gift that lasts for all eternity. Children, do your gifts last very long? Not usually. I still have the Tonka truck. I've brought it here before. It's not quite the same. 
not as shiny. Still a truck, still fun, but not as shiny. The gift I'm talking about in Jesus is one and the only one ultimately that lasts forever. And so today I want to ask you, have you trusted in Jesus for your salvation? And that question is not just to the children, but to all of us. And then I want to ask all who have trusted in Christ, when's the last time you did something just because you love Jesus? You know we're called to give. We're called to sacrifice. We love to say what goes deepest to the heart goes widest to the world. And the way in which we view all of our life, our talents, our treasures, our resources, our time, is truly a reflection of how much we really understand what God has done for us. We never fully learn how to be that perfect, generous giver this side of heaven. But the Lord leads us along. And he does so in a way that shows us the joy of what it means to look at our calendar and say, God, how do you want to use me to extend Christ? To look at our hands, our mind, and to think about the gifts he's given us, the call he's given us to make known the name of Jesus. To look at our bank statements, to consider how might you be calling me, Lord, to continue to extend your kingdom. For that kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It will continue to multiply. And it is the heart of our elders, your elders, that we would be a church where every member and friend of this church is giving generously, sacrificially to that end because of the joy we have in reflecting Jesus. When is the last time you did something just because you love Jesus? Ask the Lord that question, but ask it with him instead of for him. And that's the profound difference. God has given us everything that we might return to him, the people that we are. Now, I want to ask you a question. Children, what do you know about the story of Daniel? Well, you most likely would say, I know about Daniel in the lion's den. I know about the fiery furnace. And Pastor Davis, it's Christmas, and we're still talking about Daniel. Why? Why haven't we moved to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or Isaiah? Well, simply this. The whole Bible is about the person of Jesus. The whole Bible is pointing to the incarnation. The whole Bible. And today, I'm about to read something that is truly amazing that Daniel heard from the angel Gabriel, the same one who came to Mary. And what he has to say is somewhat confusing, somewhat filled with conflict throughout the church, and yet in the essence of what's there is the good news of the incarnation of God becoming man. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. It's in your bulletin. I'm going to read Daniel 9, 24 to 27. And as I do, just, just listen and imagine what is taking place. Daniel has prayed and he has asked God not to delay 
And God has moved so swiftly that he sent this angel to speak these words to Daniel. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It's an, its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Most people, when they come to passages like this, do one of two things. They ignore it, or they fixate on it. We ignore it because it's not very clear. I'm not saying scripture's not clear, but not all passages are as clear as some. And so when we seek to understand a complicated passage, we do so in the context of that which is more clear. So some people are just like, there's nothing in that for me. I don't know what Daniel got out of it, but whatever he got out of it, he didn't make it very clear, so I'm moving on. And you check the box in your one-year reading plan or wherever you are in your study, and you move on. That is not the right way to read Scripture. The second person actually is like, you know what? I'm going to fix my eyes on this. I'm going to figure it out. And I'm going to read people who have said they figured it out. And then when you do, you'll realize they haven't. One knows. It's God. To help you understand how difficult these verses have been throughout the history of the church, Ian Duguid said this about Jerome. Jerome was a brilliant teacher in 400 AD, so 400 years after the life, death, resurrection of Christ. This is what Jerome said. Because it is unsafe to pass judgment on the opinions of the great teachers of the church, the early church fathers, and to set one of them above, above another, I shall simply repeat the view of each and leave it to the reader's judgment as to whose explanation ought to be followed. He then listed nine conflicting opinions on the meaning of this passage, declaring himself unable to decide which one, if any, was right. A.D. 400. A more current commentator, Brian Chappell, who will be 
here for Winter Grace at the end of January. We can't wait to relaunch Winter Grace. And his really helpful commentary on Daniel, listen to what he says. Through the centuries, preachers and commentators have scratched their heads and debated each other about what the 70 weeks of Daniel represent. Several years ago, I was asked to add to my earlier book on the life of Daniel by completing a commentary on these final prophetic chapters. I did not take the assignment because I recognized that I was out of my depth in trying to figure out what has caused centuries of debate among our best Bible scholars. What gives me courage to approach the subject now is having read an eminent scholar who, with great humility and charity, wrote that this famous vision has led to such interminable controversies that any interpretation no longer admits of any certainty. If even the best minds struggle to explain this passage, then I am not embarrassed to admit that I cannot, with certainty, explain all the mysteries. To have mysteries in the word of God that we can't explain is not a mystery to God. All scripture is God breathed, all of it, even 924 to 27. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But we're not told that all scripture is easily understood. The main essence of the gospel is, and it is even here, it was not God's intention to confuse us. But when these things take place that are transcendent, that we're struggling to understand whether they are to be literal years or a literary tool, we are reminded that we are not God. We are reminded that his thoughts are too wonderful for us. We should not ignore it. We should study it. And there are many books that would be helpful to read for you to study it. This could be the content of Sunday morning communities or a small group Bible study. But at the end of the day, there's still going to be an element of mystery. And that mystery ought to lead us to worship. It ought to lead us to praise him, to say he is far greater than I. Chapel goes on to say, the main point of Daniel's vision is not to create eschatology debates, but rather to encourage God's people who are in captivity. Remember the context. The people of God have been held in captivity by the people of Babylon. Chapel says God does not give the vision to vex us with limitations of our wisdom, but to comfort his people with the assurance of his care. That's what Daniel's receiving. And there is so much here that is clear that we can benefit from. Another, another commentator that I've enjoyed reading from much during this study is Del Ralph Davis. He begins this section with some levity. He says this, in a Peanuts cartoon, Linus is interpreting a nursery rhyme. He tells Charlie Brown, the way I see it, the cow jumped over the moon indicates a rise in farm prices. Linus Ask if Charlie agrees. Charlie confesses. I can't say. I don't pretend to be a student of prophetic literature. 
And so are we. So many of us simply saying, I don't understand and I'm moving on. And if you move on too quickly, you miss what is crystal clear. Yes, there are challenges. In fact, Del Ralph Davis will go on to say, my very first lecture, he was a professor, a seminary professor, my very first lecture on this passage was titled, 70 Weeks and 20 Problems. He then identifies the 20 problems that he's speaking of. Just listen to a few of them. If you pry open the can of problems, you ask, what are the sevens or weeks? Are they just weeks or weeks of years? Are they to be taken literally, 490 years, or in some symbolic way? How are we to understand the fulfillment of the purpose clauses? Are they fulfilled in a decisive way in Christ's first advent, or do they point to an ultimate fulfillment of the wake of his second advent? Is the most holy, at the end of verse 24, a place or possibly a person? We're about a third of the way through the list. But listen to how he ends his section commenting on this. The very last paragraph of this brilliant commentary says this. So what is the message of Daniel 9, 24 to 27? What is it for Daniel and therefore to us? Something like this. I want you to hear this. Something like this. You are called to a long obedience. Reminds me of the Eugene Peterson title, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, a wonderful book. You are called to a long obedience. Your people will be sustained even in distressing times. Remember how it said in verse 25, but in a troubled time. You are called to a long obedience your people will be sustained even in distressing times. And the great hater of God's people sits in the Lord's crosshairs with the date of his demise clearly marked on God's calendar. You may have wished for more, but that's mostly what Daniel 9, 24 to 27 is about. And that's not bad. So here's the way I would like to approach this this morning. What Daniel has prayed for is God's people to be rescued and returned. God's swiftly answering his prayer. And what he is saying to Daniel is it's going to take longer. The fulfillment of the history of redemption is not just this people, my people returning to Babylon. It's going to take longer. But Daniel, it's going to be far more majestic, far greater, more marvelous than you could even imagine. Daniel is hearing that the Lord is leading him and his people, that he's with them, that he will never forsake them, that same thread throughout Scripture. It will take longer, but it will be far greater. So for a few minutes, here's what I would like to do. I would like to look at the when, the what, and the wow. Children, did you follow along with that? The when, the what, and the wow. So often we come to a text like this and we are consumed with the when. When, W-H-E-N, when is this going to happen? I'm going to try to understand everything about these weeks, 
and I'm going to figure it out. And you know there are people that have written about this. There's movies that have been made about this. Some are better than others. But what does God's word say? I know many of us have heard as parents, after speaking as children, are we there yet? No matter how much cars have changed, and no matter how much before cars had changed so much, parents did to the interior of the car to make it better. Some of you ripped out the back seat of the station wagon and put a mattress in there. No seat belts. I know a family where the father, because they didn't have carpet in the car, drilled a hole in the bottom of the floor bed, put a tin can over it. That was the restroom. That was the rest area. They weren't going to stop. I know a family in our church, I won't tell you their name, but their initials are the Rosines. They would feed their children saltines, leaving from Dallas to go to Michigan and not give them anything to drink. Are we there yet? This side of heaven, we're not there yet. And we're tired of waiting. Daniel was tired of waiting too. What my wife and I have done over the years is we simply look at the rearview mirror. And as our children are looking from the back towards that rearview mirror, we show them that this is where we started and this is when we're going to end. From the left side of the mirror to the right. So my children never asked, are we there yet? They would say, where are we on the mirror? A trip from here to Oklahoma City, that went pretty fast. A trip from here to Pennsylvania to see the other family, that was a really, really slow. And that's actually better because some days move pretty fast. And some years move really, really slow. Where are we on the mirror? God's word doesn't tell us specifically. It gives hints. Even Jesus himself says, I don't know the day or the hour. Only the Father knows, but the Father does know. So when it comes to the when, we can do our best to ask for the Lord's guidance. We can read wonderful teachers and what they have to say. But at the end of the day, we know that Christ is going to come like a thief in the night. We need to be ready. Are you ready? Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Are you living for Christ as your Savior? We should not become fixated with the when. If we become fixated with the time, our eyes will be drawn and be tempted to miss the things which are very clear, and that is the what. And I want to show you what the what is in this passage, particularly in the first verse we read, verse 24. What is the what if we can't know when is the when? Well, the what is first this. It's not just going back to Jerusalem. It's not just going back to that land that is the history of redemption. It's going to be far greater. And then the angel Gabriel reveals six things in one verse that each could have its own series. Look what he says. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. To, here they come. There's six. Listen. Number one, to finish the transgressions. Number two, to put an end to sin. Number three, to atone for iniquity. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal both vision and profit. And number six, to anoint a most holy place. That's the what. 
And if you are so consumed with figuring out the wind, you'll miss this which is so rich. To finish the transgressions, to put an end to sin. Hebrews chapter 9, 26 says this about Jesus. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Every one of these six rich theological truths are fulfilled in the person Jesus. The reason Jesus became man and remained God is because these six things would be fulfilled in him. Let's focus on just two. The third one says to atone for iniquity and the fourth to bring an everlasting righteousness. Now don't, don't tune me out now. Don't tune me out thinking we're about to get into language and words I can't understand. You can and you must. To atone for iniquity. Atonement is simply this. It's the work that Christ did in his life and death to earn salvation for his people. It's simply that. The work Christ did in his life to earn salvation for his people. Yes, it involves the resurrection, his ascension, his reign, his rule, his promised return. But at its core, the atonement was what was necessary for us. So in order for the atonement to take place, Jesus had to become man. James Boyce and his wonderful work on the foundations of Christianity speaks of the, incarna the incarnation and he says this, the incarnation does many things. It declares that life is valuable in God himself becoming man. It declares that God has not abandoned us. It shows that God understands and sympathizes with us. It actually gives us an example of how to live because he was perfect. But atonement is the real reason for the incarnation. So when we celebrate the incarnation, this child who is God, man, it's for the sake of his atoning work that we worship him. James Montgomery Boyce goes on to quote Anselm of Canterbury, who died in 1110, or 1109, he said, God became man in Christ because only one who was both God and man could achieve our salvation. So listen to this. Salvation is always greater than we can imagine. It's longer and more marvelous. What the angel Gabriel was saying to Daniel was, this is gonna be far grander than you can imagine. It's gonna take a long time. Wait upon the Lord. But why? Why was it necessary for God to become man? Anselm said this. He gave two answers. The first is that salvation had to be achieved by God, for no one else could achieve it. Certainly, men and women could not achieve it, for we are the ones who have gotten ourselves into trouble in the first place, and all of us not just some of us. We have done so by our rebellion against God's just law and decrees. Moreover, we have suffered from the effects of sin to such a degree 
that our will is bound, and therefore we cannot even choose to please God, let alone actually please him, until the wonderful work of the Spirit takes place. Ephesians 2, Paul says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, not sick, not morally weak. We were dead, no heartbeat for God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ. So it must be a work that is achieved by God. But secondly, his answer, and it is an apparent contradiction, Salvation must also be achieved by man. Man is the one who has wronged God and must therefore make the wrong right. Granted this state of affairs, salvation can be achieved only by one who is both God and man, namely Christ. And so when Daniel hears these words from Gabriel, to finish the transgressions, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity. It's all pointing forward to this God-man who will come. We have the advantage. We're looking back at the history of redemption of what has already fulfilled, waiting for the second advent of that God-man. And while we're waiting, is Gabriel told Daniel to bring an everlasting righteousness we who are in Christ have already received that coat, that covering, that eternal righteousness. For when you have received Jesus alone for your salvation, the Father sees you covered in Jesus. Some of you are going to get clothes for Christmas. And if you're little, you're not going to like that. As you get a little bit older, you're, you're going to like that. You're going to enjoy that. But those clothes are going to wear out, probably get too small, probably come out of style. Hold on to them. Your children will one day want to wear them to some fashion day at school, making fun of your generation. But the one coat that's being spoken of here is an everlasting coat, the coat of Jesus, his covering. It's an everlasting righteousness. So what is the wow? This passage speaks of this decree end is poured out on the desolator. Satan has been defeated. But the ultimate victory, the culmination of that, the climax of that, the full summation of that is still to come. The full realization of that when we are in glory is still to come. And so many of us want to know, when will Christ return? When will that ultimately take place? In February of 2008, specifically, specifically on the 20th, west of Hawaii, the USS Lake Erie had been given a mission in really waging waters, raging waters. They had a mission to shoot down a disabled satellite that was about the size of a bus that was full of toxic fuel. 
And the fear was as if this made it through and then dissipated in an explosion too close, there could be tremendous chaos and casualties. So the date was set for this attack on the satellite to take place. March 1st, 10.30 p.m. The challenge was they only had a 30-second window to shoot a missile 150 miles into space to hit a satellite that was traveling at 17,000 miles per hour. Timing precise, shot accurate, destruction complete. God knows. The enemy is in his crosshairs. There's no wondering to God about when and no mystery. In the meantime, he has given us everything necessary to understand what matters most in his word. And he has given us enough mystery to remember we are not God. If you travel east on Lover's Lane, between Preston and Hillcrest, there is a house on the corner that every Christmas has a countdown to Christmas. It's fun to see as it just rolls on and on. Well, there is a count that's happening in eternity, and the Father knows when it is, but only the Father knows. Between now and the moment that that hits zero, and the time has come. Fix your eyes on the one who is the anointed one in this passage, who is your atonement, who is your everlasting righteousness. And one day, when the Father says, go, he will return and usher in the second advent. And when he does, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Between now and then, some of us are going to be called home. Maybe all of us. Because where are we on the mirror? I don't know. We could still be pretty close to the left, a long ways away. Or we could be really close. Imagine me driving my car with my family in it with my eyes fixed on that mirror. Foolish. Don't fix your eyes on what we've been told can't be known. Fix your eyes on the what and the who that can be known. Father in heaven, thank you for your gift of your word, of your son, of the Holy Spirit, of this body of believers that have gathered together. God, would you work in our hearts even this day as we close in song thinking deeply of this comfort and this joy that we have here in this moment of seeking to follow you and find hope in the one who has been so perfectly faithful to us, a long faithfulness toward your final hope. This is the gift of Daniel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.